everyone. This is Free Food for Thought. I'm Natalie. And I'm Nathaniel. Today, we're joined by Pardis Madavi. Madavi is the provost and executive vice president at the University of Montana. She previously served as associate professor and chair of anthropology at Pomona College. Her work focuses on gender and sexuality in the Muslim world, including gendered labor, sexual politics, labor migration, human rights, youth culture, transnational feminism, human trafficking, and public health in the context of changing global and political structures. She's the author of Passionate Uprisings, The Intersection of Sexuality and Politics in Post-Revolutionary Iran, Gridlock, Labor, Migration, and Human Trafficking in Dubai, and From Trafficking to Terror. A lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Madavi has been a fellow at the Social Sciences Research Council, the American Council on Learned Societies, Google Ideas, and the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's consulted for a wide array of organizations, including the U.S. government, Google, and the United Nations. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start just by asking for some context into your background. Um, could you just tell us a bit about your formative years and um, any anything that happened or um, any any like instances growing up that kind of led you to your current position today as a um, executive vice president provost at University of Montana? Absolutely. Um, I think actually my formative years were exceptionally important in guiding my career trajectory. Uh, I'm Iranian-American. My parents uh, left Iran. They fled during the revolution of 1978-79. And we were initially settled in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, and then in 1984, I came home from school one day and there was a sign posted out the front of my door and it said, burn this house, terrorists live here. And my father made the very difficult decision to pack everything up and moved us to California, to Southern California, where he knew uh, there were more Iranians, there were different cultures. Um, but he said something to me in that move that I will never forget. He said, you know, Pardis, people, they might try to take everything from you. They will take your home, they'll take your belongings, they could even take your country. But the one thing no, no one can ever take from you is your education. And that is what inspired me to want to be a leader in higher education to help others get that which can never be taken away. Now, the last time we interviewed you was in January of 2020. So you're talking about your education and now how you've dedicated your life to studying Iran. Um, I'm wondering how Iran has changed in the past and like evolved in the past three years. Well, what we're seeing today is what could be described as the beginnings of a revolution in Iran. Um, so in September of 2022, just a couple of months ago, um, a young woman by the name of Mahsa Jina Amini stepped off a train at the Tehran train station. She's a young Kurdish woman, Kurdish Iranian woman. And she was on holiday and she stepped off the train and her headscarf was slipping a little bit back. Some strands of hair were showing. She had some lipstick on and she was promptly arrested by the Gashta Irshad, which is the morality police. She suffered pretty severe brutality at the hands of the morality police and died in police custody less than 24 hours later. Her arrest and abuse and death were all caught on camera, posted and shared via social media. 
and they caused an absolute outrage with people pouring into the streets and saying this government is not representative of us. This government is not uh, vested in our human rights. Um, and the animating chant for the protesters who have been protesting for more than 100 days now um, is women, life, freedom. And it's this uh, notion that, you know, until all are free, until women are free, until everyone is free, um, this is this is not a life that that can be palatable. And so what we've seen since 2020 are increasing numbers of protests, increasing numbers of um people involved. It's no longer the case that the protests are only taking place in the cities like Tehran or Esfahan or Shiraz. Now you have the protests taking place in more than 85 cities in some of the most rural areas. And that's very significant. And what has the government's response to all this been? You know, I think the government is essentially showing that they're scrambling. So they've gone back and forth a bit. There was an initial um, actual loosening of the of the hijab uh, uh, and, and, and mandatory morality uh, laws, because this is, of course, about much more than the veil, much more than hijab. It's, it's about larger kind of questions around morality. So, there, there, the, you know, we've seen some of that, but we've also seen the government crack down pretty hard. Uh, and so, you know, when the protests were initially beginning, people um, were faced with, you know, the, the, the government had deployed squads with tear gas, um, arresting and, um, you know, brutalizing numerous protesters. And then what we've seen in the last three weeks are public executions of, of protesters, which has been um, pretty chilling. And what's crazy is that the the label is moral, like moral police. And um, in a podcast you did with NPR, the National Public Radio, you talked about how this kind of goes back to like a desire by the government for um, an old Iran. And so I was wondering if you could explain kind of the values of old Iran and the agenda behind the moral police. Absolutely. So the moral morality police are charged with, and this is actually codified in law in, in Iran under the Islamic Republic, they are charged with upholding right and forbidding wrong. But how that is interpreted, of course, you know, that, that leaves a lot of room, right? Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things that this regime, the platform on which they ran, was this notion that Iran had become overly fascinated with the West. They'd become West-toxicated, if you will. And they had lost their sense of Iranianness. And they pointed to women wearing short skirts, red lipstick, um, people going to parties. They, they pointed to these lavish parties under the monarchy. And so in 1978, 79, that very same revolution that caused my parents to have to to leave the the Islamic regime came to power under a fabric of morality and so they said listen we are going to combat this west toxication by bringing this sense of austerity proper dress wearing hijab proper this sense of what is an old iranianness however since the regime has been in place, there have been a lot of questions about whether or not that kind of an austerity is really what the old Iran was about. And, and really, there has been a return to, you know, the values of, of Iran and of Persia, values around human rights, values of democracy and freedom. And people aren't seeing this regime enacting those, which is part of why they're rising up. I... 
I'm a bit curious um, what connections you see between Iran and the U.S. today in terms of, um, I mean, the idea of like a culture war here. Um, however dumb that that is, I think might have some connection to Iran um, in terms of the notion that there are certain people uh, dictating for you what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot say. Um, is there anything there you'd, you'd be able to explore? You know, I, I think that um, the case of Iran really, you know, <clears throat> it gives us a lot of food for thought in the sense of what do we mean and what are the values around free speech, for instance, right? And so one of the things, you know, that, that I talk about and I've more recently started talking about is my own arrest in Iran. And I was arrested for a lack of academic freedom. I was arrested because I was speaking about gender and sexual politics and I paid a pretty heavy price. And so I think one of the things that is useful is for us to think about what we do have here in the United States with regards to academic freedom and free speech and what that means. And I think that um, the value of democracy and the importance of democracy, it, it can't be underscored enough. And so, you know, while we have these culture wars going on, what we also need to be attuned to is the way in which culture wars can eat away at democracy because we become so overly focused on certain things that we lose that sort of democratic core of what makes us who we are. And uh, just a follow up to that as well, um, with the prevalence of, of social media today and um, individualized news sources, all of that, um, have you seen in Iran more people um, actually able to form like collectives and organize these mass protests? Definitely. I think that, um, you know, even in 2009, Iran had a social movement, a pro, you know, up, uprisings that was referred to as the Green Movement. And one of the nicknames given to the Green Movement was the Twitter Revolution, um, because people were deploying social media to kind of get the word out. I think what we see in this round of protests is that people are using um, technology, they're using video footage, they're using um, social media and, and then, you know, apps to, to transmit information, um, to get information out of Iran and to have information flowing into Iran. And they're also using it to build global networks. So one of the things that we saw even in 2009 with the Green Movement that led into the Arab Spring is we see the formation of coalitions, of these underground coalitions and underground justice movements movements that are building together across borders in a region. And that is absolutely facilitated by social media. Yes, thank you. And I think you're talking about kind of moving from like an old Iran to a new Iran. But what I'm curious about is you kind of pointed to like the first thing that started the movement of the moral police was like the short dresses and like these Western ideas. But then also in your podcast, you talked about how when you were there, you went to parties um, that were in violation of the laws and they had kind of this taste of like freedom in, in it, like contrasted to the way things are now. And it was kind of freeing. And so I'm kind of wondering what went wrong in the first place and when we're kind of transitioning back to more Western ideas again, how do we kind of prevent the same problems from happening? And how do you like kind of grapple with this? So I think one of the things I would say is we're not transitioning back to Western values. I think we have to look at the 
history of Iran in a much larger context. Mm. The first Declaration of Human Rights was written by King Cyrus in Persia thousands of years ago. You know, this notion of a democracy of, you know, people coming together to um, form a collective. These are all things that came organically from the region. And so to say that it's going back to Western values or to equate human rights with the West or to equate feminism with the West would be a mistake. I think it's this notion of actually going back to organic movements that have been going on. Now, with regards to kind of that outer comportment, the miniskirts, the parties, et cetera, what went wrong, I think, and, you know, in my opinion, something I've written about pretty extensively is, you know, when when a regime, you know, back to, to the earlier question about culture wars, when a regime says, listen, we're going to operationalize our power through a fabric of morality, we're going to operationalize our power by telling you what you can wear and can't wear, who you can hang out with and can't hang out with, what you can eat or drink, well, then people are going to push back on that. Right. And say, wait a second, the government is supposed to be invested in making sure that unemployment isn't through the roof, solving our traffic. Like, what is the government supposed to be invested in? Are they supposed to be invested in what goes on in the bedroom or are they supposed to be invested in finding me a job and making sure my family isn't hungry? And I think that that when there is that tension and that frustration, young people, at least the ones I was observing, they wanted to find a way to speak back to a regime with which they didn't agree. And they used their bodies because that was the language, that was the coin of the realm for the regime. That's the language that the regime understood. So that's why they would do that. So if you were in the position of power to actually change things in some way in Iran, um, and like this is this is all just hypothetical, um, but um, what do you think you would try to change first, and what impact would you hope that would have? Um, you know, I think that um, Iran in in the 1950s, in 1953, Iran had a democratically elected prime minister, Mossadegh. Um, and he was really about nationalization of oil. He was much. It was about democracy, about human rights, etc. And um, that was a real, really important time for Iran. Uh, and then, unfortunately, it, you know, it's come out recently that there was a CIA-backed coup that removed Mossadegh from power, etc. But, um, you know, I think that that style government resonated with a lot of Iranians. And so I think what I would do is, you know, kind of look at the best practices from there, look at the best practices from around the world, really, and start to initially build a transitional government that starts to get us more towards more towards a democratically elected um, governing body. And so kind of as a follow to that as well, um, what do you think the West should or can do? Um, should we do anything? Um, can we do anything? Um, I, I mean, I know I've seen a lot of uh, my friends just posting online about um, about the ongoing protests as well, but um, What's your take on that? I think one of the most important things that we here in the West can do is not give up on the, on the protesters. I think it's far more likely that we outside of Iran will lose patience and you know lose interest than the people in Iran. 
And so I think continuing to articulate the support, saying we see the protesters, we understand, we see the human rights violations, we see what's happening, and and you know vocalizing our support, verbalizing our support, but also trying to figure out ways in which we can support the protesters by supporting the organizations that are you know doing the work to at least you know ensure that political prisoners are not executed without any kind of due process. Um, I think that accountability and that support are really important. Um, so what impact as of present have you seen the protesting? Because I agree that it's getting more public publicity than I've, I personally have ever seen. Mm -hmm. Has it started to make an impact? Um, where do you see this kind of going now? I think one of the things we can see most clearly is that, as I mentioned, the, the morality uh, rules and laws around, you know, outerwear, et cetera, they've been relaxed. I mean, that's a pretty significant thing. Women are walking around, you know, um, and that that's more than just being about the veil. That's about a power struggle with some push pull. Right. That's that's really significant there. Um, I think the other thing we've seen is the, the, the building of coalitions. And there is now there are now conversations happening as we speak about building a transitional government and who would be on there and how all the different sectors, including arts and education and health, would be represented. That to me signals this is a potentially a tipping point. Yes. And that's like actually another question I'm curious about. Do you think this is more of a struggling with values or a struggle with power because this kind of originally started with the hope like for a good thing morality but do you think it turned into something different so it's a different sort of a problem we're now dealing with i think it's it's both it's it's people um operationalizing their power through values that don't necessarily comport with all iranians um I'd like to go back a bit to your time at Pomona um, as well. I, I was a bit curious um, and kind of tying it back to students as well, um, since that's our main demographic of listeners. But um, did you have any like um, student researchers or assistants who who helped you in any way with um, your research on Iran? Absolutely. I had a number of them and I wouldn't have been able to do any of my research without the incredible students that I had, you know, they were largely Pomona students. I did have one uh, CMC student with whom I'm still in touch, uh, and she really was an integral part of my human trafficking work. Um, and I, I had the good fortune of taking students with me to the Middle East uh, every other summer to do field work because, as an anthropologist, it's important to teach students how to do field work, especially in a sensitive setting. And so I was very fortunate to to always be able to take uh, one, two or three students with me. And was there a piece of research um, in your time at Pomona that um, still sticks with you today that you perhaps like reference somewhat frequently? Yeah, I guess I would say my second book, Gridlock. Um, that book was very much uh, you know, came out of a class I taught at Pomona College called Love, Labor, and the Law. And that class uh, really started getting me thinking about human trafficking kind of on a larger scale. And I had several students from that class who were my research assistants for the book Gridlock. And then over the years, as I taught that class again and again, it then birthed my 
other book called Crossing the Gulf, Love and Migration uh, in, in Family Lives. And, you know, that book came out of a series of conversations with my students uh, in, in at the Claremont Colleges about how we think about these intersections of love, family and politics when we look at migration. And you've written multiple books, and I think it's very clear that it's fueled by a deep passion you have. And um, I mean, early on, what happened with your parents was obviously probably, I'm assuming, a big drive for you. How would you say your response to that traumatic event evolved over time? And um, how did it kind of make its way into your work? Um, yeah, could you walk me yeah. through that? You know, I think that people like to talk a lot about intergenerational trauma, and I think that that, that is real. And there's there like you know, families fleeing war and revolution and all of that. There is some intergenerational trauma, but for me, I also feel very fortunate because I draw on intergenerational strength, and I think about the strength of my grandmother, you know, in Iran, who was, you know, sharpshooter on horseback and like making really tough decisions to guard her herd of horses in her farm. And I think about my parents who made it the tough decision to leave their country with nothing and come here. I, I you know, you can choose to focus on, you know, the trauma and the sort of how am I going to get through this? Or you can think about strength. And for me, it's been a really an important shift in, in thinking about the intergenerational strength that, you know, for thousands of years has flown through through my ancestors and now flows through me onto my children. Thinking about that strength has been a really uh, integral part of my writing process and what I do. I think it's really powerful to think about it in terms of intergenerational strength instead, um, which I, I haven't heard that term before, but I, I do quite like that. Um, and you mentioned your grandmother, um, a sharpshooter on horseback. Um, in doing our research, we did, um, I, I can't say fully a deep dive, but um, we just we saw on your, your uh, Instagram, um, you have lots of like horse photos. Um, do you think that uh, kind of seeking that connection with your grandmother led you to go to the University of Montana to have sort of more of that, I don't know how to say it, like um, equestrian experience, mm -hmm. something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that that my grandma, you know, in her heart, she had that, you know, the, the freedom that comes from being on a horse and riding in the mountains. And that's what fueled her when things were difficult. And um, for me, you know, part of my, you know, love of, of horses and riding, it certainly flows from my grandmother, but it also just, you know, for me, it's also been a part of um, adopting my new homeland, which is the West. And so for me, Montana is like the epitome of the West. And it's like, that's, I have the heart of the West in me and I can, you know, and I, I have horses and I ride and um, it's such an important part of who I am that I've just decided to kind of embrace that and, and, and make sure that I'm in a venue where I can embrace it. And I think we have time for just one more quick question. Um, I, I know the way we finished up the interview last time you were here in, in again, January of 2020, um, I think we asked you, and by we, I mean just the previous people on the podcast, um, I'm not that old. Unfortunately, but um, we asked you something about media, um, but it was more in, in the sense of 
you um, telling people that they should like create something. Um, but I'm curious, what sort of media would you recommend to our listeners um, in terms of a song, a book, um, anything like that? Um, I guess I would say a song that has become kind of an anthem for the Iranian movement that we're seeing today. It's called Baroye, and I can send you the link so you can share with your listeners. And it really talks about the um, the sacrifices people are making and why they're making it. And it, it's a you know if you listen to the lyrics and, and they'll be translated on the link that I send you. It's it's pretty chilling. People are willing to die for what they believe in, and that's I think something that all of us should think about. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Um, Parties Madavi, thank you so much for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thanks for having me. Thank you.